0: Here's a little Bible trivia quiz. How many people in all of human history walked on water without the aid of motorized vehicles or flotation devices? How many people? Two. Two. Who is the other guy? Peter, right? Peter walked on water. Right? Jesus wasn't the only person who walked on water. Peter does. right? So the, the disciples see Jesus walking in the storm on the waves, and they're a little bit freaked out. But Peter says, if it's, if it's you, call me to come to you. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter does, and Peter walks on the water. Now We don't know for how long he walked on the water. We don't know what that scene was like. Was it baby steps? Was he baby steps and then dancing before the Lord like King David? Was he Was he really excited about it? Would you be really excited about it or would you be more scared about it? What would be your, I don't know. But it says that in the story, as soon as he began to see the wind of the storm, he was afraid and he began to sink. This is kind of an operating metaphor for us this morning as we think about this story. Because Judah is in a similar situation to where Peter was in relation to God. Judah has seen God do amazing things, right? They've seen God walk across the water. They've seen God calm the storms. And they've participated in that, right? They were, they were there in their history for all of the great stories of the works of God. But now for 35 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and for however many decades those chapters represent, we have been seeing this storm gather on the, the geopolitical horizon in Judea and that region. The storm is Assyria. And as Assyria grows in power to the north, and as they begin sort of growing and taking over region and town after town, Israel has gotten more and more anxious about the Assyrian invasion. In Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, that invasion has come. They are knocking on the gates of Jerusalem. It's here. And so what's going to happen to Jerusalem? What's going to happen to the King Hezekiah and the leaders Of God's people are they going to in this moment stare into the storm and be afraid and begin to sink or are they going to walk on the water and stay focused on the Lord that's the question for Hezekiah for Jerusalem for us as we approach this text so let's look through this passage and and just get our brain around the story and then we're going to think about what this story means so in the story, King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, right? he's got this, this huge army, an army the likes of which the world has never seen before. And he sends just really a chunk of it. He takes the main force down to the Egypt area, and he sends a main, uh, another huge, significant chunk to the Jerusalem area. And so they show up, and the Rabshakeh, who's some sort of like military dignity, dignitary who speaks for Sennacherib, he shows up with the sole purpose of mocking and intimidating King Hezekiah and the leaders of Jerusalem. So let's read some of the, the intimidation that Sennacherib through the Rabshakeh delivers to Hezekiah in Jerusalem. Let's look down at verse 8, Isaiah 36, 8. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? That's verse 9, 8. I want to read verse 8. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How can then you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Every part of this, every breath of this is mockery, right? Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, "'Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. "'Don't speak to us in the language of Judah "'within the hearing of the people who are on the wall.' "'But the Rabshakeh said, "'Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you "'and not to the men sitting on the wall "'who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine?' "'Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah.' Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria, as opposed to your guy, whatever his name was again. Thus says the great king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. So the rabshack's job is is just to intimidate and mock. So they hear this, these leaders hear this, they they get upset, right? They tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they go to king Hezekiah, tell him, And then they call the prophet Isaiah. So our Isaiah, the the author of this book. In verse 4, this is what they say. This is the conclusion of the reading Mike read for us a moment ago. Isaiah 37, 4. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Let's continue reading. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, that is King Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Okay, that sounds really good. Then something happens in verse 8. So look at verse 8. Then the Rabshakeh returned, found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So is this the fulfillment of what Isaiah had just said? Is this, is this what's happening right here? Is Assyria gone now? Are they gone for good? But then just to make sure that Hezekiah doesn't get that idea, the Rabshakeh says in verse 9, Now the king heard concerning Tiraqa, king of Cush, he has sent out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah. So Sennacherib through Rabshakeh sends a message to Hezekiah. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Whoa! Do not let the God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the king of Assyria, the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Reziph, the people of Eden who are in Telasar? Where is the king of Hamath? The king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva? Well, So now it kind of sounds like Sennacherib is really ticked off. And so more than just mocking and intimidating, he is outright threatening and deriding Hezekiah and Jerusalem, Judah, and Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people, the God of Scripture. So what should Hezekiah do? What would you do if, if the heat of the greatest empire the world had ever seen was directed at you. What should Hezekiah do? Uh, How would, what does he do? uh, He prays. Hezekiah prays. Let's read this prayer. It's a great prayer. Verses 14 to 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of hosts, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. But is... Praying at this juncture, at this moment in what's going on, is this a reasonable thing for a king to do? Right? How would the American people have responded if after Pearl Harbor, after 9-11, the president and, and, and all the dignitaries said, you know what? We're just, before we respond, let's just take a day and pray. Right, it, the, the whole nation would have risen up as one. Now is not the time for prayer. We need action. We need strength. We need plans. We need to take control of this thing. And the, the situation that Hezekiah is facing is, I mean, he's hopelessly overmatched. I mean, the Rabshakeh is not really wrong. They've sent their scouts ahead. They've scouted out Judah's uh, resources and military abilities. They know what they're up against. They're not up against much. But they want Jerusalem. I mean, shouldn't King Hezekiah, shouldn't this king, shouldn't he recognize the hand of God in this? Right? When you find yourself super stuck, overwhelmingly opposed, right? Com- like you just say, well, this must be God's will. Right? Hezekiah needs to wake up and recognize this is, this is God's will. What should his job be? His, should, his job should be to care for the people through this, to make sure that not as many of them die as could die, to make sure that there's not as much damage to the temple or, or these things. He should be trying to come up with a plan for a strategic compromise. Hey, we'll do this if you just don't do this. Some kind of retreat. How we get the best and preserve our culture and preserve our people somewhere we need to hide, we need to run, we need to go. I mean, if you were advising King Hezekiah, right, what would you say you need more of at this juncture? We need more and better plans. We need more and better advisors. We need more and better and swift action, what does Hezekiah say we need more of? We need more prayer. And we need more prayers. Doesn't it just feel like your guts want to crawl out of your mouth when you think about like, all of the, the things in your life, Because right? this is very uh, applicable to kind of our moment as well. We feel very overmatched. I feel like culture is against us, technology is against us, there's, there's economic problems, there's media problems, there's, the, there's politics, there's the international geopolitical scene. I mean, all of these things are rising up and we just feel like, oh, we need, we need leaders who can take action, we need a better plan, we need people to come, we need... What do we need more of right now? I think what Hezekiah is modeling for us and why Isaiah presents him to God's people in this book is because when we're in situations like this, what we need more of is we need more of prayer. We need more of God. Why does Hezekiah pray? You know, let's get inside this. Why does this make sense to Hezekiah to respond to this overwhelming threat with prayer? And it makes sense to him because he remembers He remembers this about God. Let's look at the beginning and end of his prayer. Verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Sometimes you'll hear me refer to God as the God, which I just love that expression. Like, he's the only God. He's not our God. And there's other gods. He's the God. God. He's the only God. Look down at verse 20, how he concludes his prayer. He says, I want all the kingdoms of the earth to know that you alone are the Lord. Now, what is that? Some of you know this, but let's just be, make sure we're clear on this. What does that all caps Lord mean? It doesn't mean Lord as in master or boss. That all caps is sort of like a, a secret way that in the Bible, the translators translate the special name of God. So they use LORD, but they use LORD in all caps. And the special name, his actual name that he reveals himself to, or by to uh, to Moses and to Israel is Yahweh, which means I am. So he's saying you alone are the I am, the the one who is alive, the, the one who actually is. You are the only God who actually is. So what does Hezekiah know? Why does, why does he turn to prayer? Because he knows who the Lord is and he knows what kind of stuff the Lord does. But this is not the first time in the history of God's people that they have been in a similar situation. Right, so not only, as he references, is this the God, is our God the God who made heaven and earth, right, that should tell you something. No other gods were involved. Look at every other cosmology and mythology, and it's like a, this coalition of gods, and some of them are doing this, and, and like they're creating by dropping stuff or chopping things up. Like It's all just a mess, and everybody's got a little part of it. Our God didn't share any of that responsibility. He did it all. Every last atom and whatever is beneath atoms in existence sprang from the mind of God and came into existence through the word of God. This is our God. Our God is also the God, as Hezekiah knows, as we know, who humiliated Egypt, who at that time was the single greatest empire the world had ever seen. He humiliated Egypt and all Egypt's gods in bringing his people out of Egypt. He's also the God of some of the other stories that may be a little less familiar to us, the God of the day of Midian. When Gideon and his 300 faced off against a Midianite and Amalekite army described in this language. So many, they were like the sands of the seashore. Verses 300. The sands of the seashore versus 300 and the Lord God. Or the story in Second Chronicles 20, where Moab and Ammon gathered together against Jehoshaphat, the king of Jerusalem. And, and Jehoshaphat looks out on, on the, he's like, there's no chance for us here. So he again goes to the Lord in prayer. And some of you may know this phrase. He concludes the prayer with, uh, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And the Lord says, since you've looked to me for this, I'll take care of things. You just stick with me. You worship me. And so they take that literally. They get the priest together, the band together, and they go out like a, like a New Orleans Funeral, right? They're just playing through the streets, marching towards where the battle is pitched, and they get there, and there's nobody there. God had done something between those armies and nations where they turned on each other, fought each other, ran off, and it says that Jehoshaphat and the people with him were, it took them three days to collect the spoil from that camp. So Hezekiah knows. He knows the Lord, and he knows what the Lord can do. And then the Rabshakeh, right, he makes this what is really a tactical blunder, but it's actually very helpful for us, very clarifying for Hezekiah, right? He makes it about God. Do you remember this? Look again at chapter 36, verses 18 to 20. What is the the Rabshakeh says? Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Wow! Right? Wow! So the Rabshakeh makes it about God. So Hezekiah is like, all right. He hands it over to God and. The Lord says he will handle it. So now look back in chapter 37, verses 21 to 35 is the Lord's answer through Isaiah to Hezekiah. Let's just pick up in verse 35 at the very concluding sentiment of the Lord in assuring Hezekiah what is going to happen. He says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He's saying, I will keep my promise. I will keep my covenant for my own sake. I will be faithful to everything that I have promised. And so don't be afraid of anything else. Just fear me. I will be faithful. And so then God will keep his covenant for his own sake And then God acts. Let's read the conclusion of this story in chapter 37, verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. God obliterates the Assyrian army. This is actually historically attested to outside of scripture. Herodotus, the first historian in human history, uh, recognized as a historian, a Grecian historian, talk, talks about this event without reference to the story and these scriptures. And then there's another guy, uh, Barisus something like that, and who's a Babylonian historian a couple hundred years later who also verifies and validates this story as well. So this, like, God obliterated the Assyrian army. And not only did he obliterate the Assyrian army, look at how the story concludes and what happens. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisrakh, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword, and after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Eshardan his son reigned in his place. So not only does God obliterate the Assyrian army, he strikes at and shames the Assyrian gods. Right, so here is the great, the great king, quote unquote, in the house of his God, where he goes for strength, where he goes for wisdom, where he goes for guidance, and in that place. In that place, God's hand finds him. Should be the safest place for Sennacherib, is in the house of his God, if his God is so great and so big. And there, God strikes him. You know why that's the case? You know how that's true, why that's possible? It's because Nisroch is nothing. Nisroch is a little statue, a figurine, a gift shop trinket. Backed up by a story, a myth, a projection, a figment of somebody's imagination. That's all Nizraq is. But the Lord, He's the living God. He's the only God. He's the only God who is alive. He is the living God. And so, friends, the point of this story for Isaiah's first readers, for us, fear the Lord above all and you will find him faithful in all. Fear the Lord above all, and you will find him faithful in all. I think we actually owe the Rabshakeh some gratitude here, because he really clarifies the situation. He says, you know, you might be just looking at our armies, and you might just be looking at the the landscape, and where we could retreat there, we could hide there. You might just be looking at these things, but I want to tell you something. It's about gods. That's what the Rabshakeh is saying. He's saying, our God is going to wipe up your God. This is a battle of gods. The problem that Hezekiah and Israel was facing was not the problem of Assyrian geopolitical dominance. It wasn't the problem of the Assyrian army. It was a theological problem. Our problems, like theirs, are theological. They are contests of gods. And the question for Hezekiah is the same question for us. Are there gods out there who can compete with your god? Are there gods out there who can intimidate your god? Who, when they get together in a little group, all of a sudden, Yahweh's like, oh man... Are there gods out there who are so strong or so savvy that they can obtain a tactical advantage where all of a sudden our God realizes, oh no, they're behind me now. Is that a thing for our God? Hmm. Of course, no, but we don't tend to actually live and think in terms of gods. Right? We, we don't tend to think in terms of our God is greater than all gods because we don't think about any other gods. But now let's talk about threats. This is what this is what is revealing, that this great threat that you're feeling is actually our God coming to kick your God's hind end. What about threats? Are there threats in this world that you're going to face that are too large for your God? That when your God, look, when you pray this threat to your God, and he says, well, uh, uh, too complicated for him? Lord, I can't get my mind around this thing. Can you help? And he's like, uh, why don't we, let's Google it. Let's Google it together. Is that a thing? Are there threats too large or too complicated for our God. Are there things in this world that are more to be feared than he is? Storms that we're going to face that are more frightening than he is in his glory. Armies that we're going to face. Right? Is there anything that we're going to encounter in, in life, whether death or anything we encounter? Is there anything in the angelic world, any rulers, anything that's present in your life or anything that's to come or any powers or anything way up high or way down deep that we haven't found or explored yet? Is there anything in all of creation that is able to do anything to thwart God's will and his purposes? And all God's people said, uh uh-uh. uh Right? Not at all. What about your What about your thing, though? What about your thing? No, no. Now I want to even push on this one level further here as we reflect on this, because again, we don't tend to think in terms of gods. And of course, when we talk in terms of threats, yes, God is greater than these things. But one of the things that Rabshakeh is using to intimidate Israel to intimidate. Jerusalem and Hezekiah, is their claim of cultural superiority. Did you catch that? What was the thing with the horses, remember? So, like, to, to have and breed horses in such um, um, numbers is kind of an indicator at that time of wealth, of savvy, of wisdom, of care, of a higher, nobler, stronger culture. And so he says to Hezekiah, listen, we've got so many amazing horses that will give you 2,000, but you have to be able to put somebody on them. Is that going to be a problem for you guys? Right? And then, and then what are your horses? Oh, you got them from Egypt? Oh, those are fine. Those are a good budget horse. Right? I mean, he's mocking Israel's culture. So you're relying on Egypt? Oh, we don't have to rely on Egypt. It's nice to have friends, but we don't really need them. And behind that is, our God is so much more superior to you and your God. Look at the prosperity we have. Look at the dominance we have in every area of civilization. So let's push on this even further. We want to talk in terms of gods, uh, threats, okay. Now, is there a way of life presented to us in the world, right, in in. in some magazine or some website or some, some news outlet or some, some, some celebrity kind of vision of life that is going to be better than the one that we have? Is there, a, is there a way of life out there that can lead you into the fullness of what it means to be a human being, that can carry you through all of the sufferings you're going to face and even give you a sense of peace and joy in them, that can turn you into a wholehearted, loving person, and then after it has blessed you with all of those things in this life, can assure you of an eternity of glory afterwards. Is there any other way of life that is superior to that? If there is, go there. But there isn't, because that's here. So our God is to be feared above all. What, what Hezekiah wants us to know, what Hezekiah knows and Isaiah wants us to know is that the our God alone is the Lord. Our God alone is the great I am living God. Our God is the only God that actually is. That's what we mean when we say he's the living God. He's the only God who is. When you are faced, you may say, well, this is pretty basic stuff. David, this is pretty basic stuff, Scripture. When you're faced with threats, what do you turn to? You think this is a really big, complicated problem. Well, then you need to return to the most basic, most essential truth. That's what Hezekiah does here. He says, I I can't see my way around the end of this. This is rolling right over me. And so he returns to the most essential, basic truth in, in all creation. God is the one who is. And so that's why he prays. That's why he prays because, and he remembers that whatever is coming against you and me is not God, is not a God. It's a made thing. It's a construct. It's a a false front. He's the one who is. And so he is to be feared above all. And so also then in conjunction with this, he's going to be faithful in all. He's going to be faithful in all. Everything that he has promised, he will do. Every word, not one of it will drop. Not one thing that he has said will drop. And I want you to understand what this, why this is important in this passage and what this, this passage does for helping us understand this. So we tend to think about God's faithfulness being a character issue, like we do with our friends, right? If he said he's going to be here, he's going to be here. What is that? We're resting our idea of his faithfulness on his character. Right, but we also say a lot of times we say unless. Oh, they—they said they're going to be here. They're going to be here. Unless they got stuck in traffic, right? Unless they hit a deer, unless something went wrong. God's faithfulness is rooted, of course, in His character, but it is also rooted in His power. There's no unlesses with God. He is able to be so faithful because there's nothing that can stop Him or slow Him or derail Him or make Him adjust His trajectory to accomplish His will. There's nothing. It's not just a character issue. It is a power issue. Nothing is going to stop God from keeping His covenant exactly as He said, which is very important at this moment in Isaiah. So if you may have noticed that we're about almost like just over halfway through. And there's going to be a big shift in the tone of Isaiah, who he's talking to and what he's talking about. And he's going to start, just as he has been laying down some extraordinary judgments on people, he's going to start lifting up some extraordinary promises to God's people. And as he lifts those up, everybody in the back of their minds is thinking, yeah, but can he pull it off? And that's what the story is here to assure us of as we go into those promises. God can pull it off. All right, there's one detail I want to draw to your attention here, which is probably going to be more important and meaningful for you and me than it would have been for the first readers of Isaiah. They, they, they would have noticed it, they might not have understood what it means. Well, for us, I think it'll be significant and actually make the, the meaning of this text even more impactful for us and more personal. Look down with me at the end of, in chapter 37. look at verse 35 and 36. Don't you notice an oddity, the Lord says through Isaiah, "I will defend this city to save it. I will defend this city to save it." And then in verse 36, "And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down the camp of the Assyrians. So God says, "I'm going to do this thing, and then the angel of the Lord does." So let's just think for a second. Who is this angel of the Lord why does why does God use him why does he does he need to use him? Is this sort of that angel's job what's what's the relationship here? God made all things with his word so does he need to like work through servants and angels to to do his will this is a really interesting character the angel of the Lord uh, throughout the Old Testament he, he pops up in a couple of significant areas and, and The word angel is just a a, a word messenger. So there's something that distinguishes him from other angels, other messengers that show up from God. And and two things that really stand out. The first is every other angel, every other messenger, when they show up and deliver God's word to a prophet or, or somebody, and if that person is struck with awe and bows down and worships that angel, that angel says, knock that off. Don't do that. I'm not God. I don't receive worship. But when the angel of the Lord shows up and people bow down and worship him and offer sacrifices to him, he's like, cool, all right, you get it. What? I thought you should worship and serve the Lord your God alone. But should we also serve and worship the angel of the Lord? I mean, what is the relationship here? The other thing that's strange is in every context where the angel of the Lord shows up and does something, God is saying, I will do it. I myself will do it. And then the angel of the Lord does it. So what is the identity of the angel of the Lord? Who is this character throughout Scripture? And of course, we're just meeting him here in Isaiah, but there's many, many stories of him popping up through uh, over the course of hundreds of years of biblical history. So who is this person? It's really interesting that in the Old Testament, the phrase the angel of the Lord is used 53 times. When we go to the New Testament, you know how many times that expression is used? Zero times. Because in the New Testament, we know him by a different name. And so the angel of the Lord is in fact the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ existed before he was born, before he was conceived. Right? He is the eternal son of God. He has always existed. What was he doing? Was he just like chilling, playing video games for millennia, waiting for God to be like, all right, now... No, he was doing what he always does, which is to see to it that the word of God is fulfilled and kept and that the will of God is done. This is what the eternal son has eternally been doing. And he's been doing it for eternity. And he's been doing it, obviously, we know him now as Jesus in flesh since AD 0. This is Jesus. So here's what this means. It means that when we think about all of these things that we've been saying that are true about God, God is to be feared above all. God is faithful in all. It's not just God, it's Jesus. Right? Not, it's Jesus who is to be feared above all. Jesus who is faithful in all. Jesus is unstoppable. So now go back in all the different things that we were talking about gods and against threats and the way of life and all of these comparisons with Nisroch and all this stuff and now substitute Jesus for all this. And you might say, well, this is, is this something we need to do? I think it is. I think it really is. This is God thinks that it is very important for our idea of who God is to learn about God in Jesus. This is why the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus has come to be to us the vision that God wants us to see when we think of God. And doesn't it change things a little bit to think God is unstoppable? Oh sure, God's God. Jesus is unstoppable. Wait a second, Jesus? The one who died for me? The one who gave his life for me? My shepherd, the good shepherd is the also the unstoppable one? It changes things. Jesus is unstoppable. So, is God able to keep His covenant promises no matter what? We hear in this story, absolutely yes. But what is the final answer to that question? The final answer is Jesus. Jesus is the final answer to the question of whether God is able to keep His promises no matter what. Oh yeah, what if He's dead? Can He keep them then? Can He keep them? You better believe it. Our Lord is utterly and absolutely trustworthy. So don't throw away your confidence in him for anything. Don't don't go over to Nisraq. Don't worry about the storm. Don't stare into the storm and get all fixated on the storm and get all worried and anxious about the storm. Don't be drawn away into some way of life that promises you electric vehicles and flying cars and, you know, life on Mars. Just don't throw away your confidence in the Lord. Trust the Lord. He is to be feared above all, he is faithful in all. So when you find yourself stuck, absolutely overwhelmed in in some sort of addiction, at some sort of terminal moment, whether in a relationship and in something in your life, remember that the Lord is faithful and he is fearful. So he is more fearful than anything you will face. That means that he is always, no matter where we find ourselves, he is always able to come through for us. He will always hold his promise and deliver. So we've said that we should, the lesson of this story is to fear the Lord above all because he is faithful in all. And so, friends, bring your all to him. Bring your all to him. What is your all? The craziest thing you've got cooking, bring it to him. The scariest thing lurking in the closets of your life, bring it to him. The thing growing in the basement that no bleach can remove, bring it to him. Whatever it is that you've got, bring it to him. Peter Peter couldn't command the storm. It's just Peter. But he didn't have to sink. And you know something? He stopped sinking the second he took Jesus' hand. And he was back on top of the water. And Hezekiah, he couldn't defeat Assyria. There's no way. But he didn't have to be afraid of their threats. And the moment that he heard the word of the Lord, he stopped being afraid. Because, friends, the Lord will keep his word to us through it all, whatever it is that you're facing. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that all these things are the absolute truth about you. That you are the most fearful of all. And so you can be the most faithful of all. And we are so thankful, Lord, not only that we get to hear these stories and these truths of you and stories of, the, of Scripture of the Old Testament, but we also get to, to meet you and meet these truths in you in our Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing is more fearful than our Lord. And so we know that he will be faithful to every word that he has said. And that everything that is true, that he, has, that he has promised, that he has declared over us, is true 100% absolutely. And so with these words, Lord, stabilize our faith. Some of us are up against very intimidating circumstances. Some of us are carrying very deep wounds. Some of us are, are, are facing fears and, and problems in our life that, are, that feel overwhelming. Some of us are being drawn away by promises of the world and, and threats of the world and our, our faith, our confidence is shaking and weakening. So give us good ears to hear this morning these good words and this truth to remember in the face of all our sophisticated and complicated and, and huge problems the simple truth that you are the God who is. You are the only God You are the Lord. And when we look to you as the Lord, as the God, we see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.